You're listening to Family Rules, the podcast on BYU Radio, inspiring ideas, inspiring families. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Family Rules, the podcast on BYU Radio. I'm your host, Brooke Walker. Here's the question we'll start with today. Have you considered what it means to make your home a learning ground? A solid learning ground. We obviously love and support our educators, and they mean so much and play a huge role in our children's learning experience. But we often hear that phrase, the first place that your children ever learn is at home. You are your child's first teacher. How are we doing in that role? Are we taking that challenge to heart, thinking about thoughtfully what your kids listen to, talk about, or watch while they're in your home? The truth is a solid learning environment is one that takes intentional creation. We're going to dive into that today. And I I say deep dive. There will also be a level of practical application that I think, I hope, will take a little bit of the overwhelm out of it for parents. We have a great guide, a great teacher who will lead us on that path today. Liz Kirk is the founder of Alcott Learning. She's worked in education for more than 20 years and now shares about her experience in the education system and how parents parents truly can make their home a learning ground. We get a little bit nerdy on the philosophy. I find it fascinating to understand better how the brain works and how how child development takes off and happens. But I have to give Liz credit. She's great about meeting us where we're at as parents, as in getting into the home space, getting into the home vibe, and offering practical, tangible tools that will set our kids up for not only success as far as education goes, but set them up to be a passionate, lifelong learner. Here's my conversation with Liz Kirk on how to make your home a learning ground. Liz, thank you so much for joining me on Family Rules. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. There's so much that I love. There is so much to love about your approach to learning and and making home a learning ground. You bring the research, you bring the experience, but you have a way of making it really practical and approachable for parents, which I appreciate. How would you define a solid learning ground? In other words, parents out there wanting to make home a good learning ground for education and beyond. What does that look like to you? What does that feel like to you? Yes. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Yeah. So that, I I love that idea. Um, We call it um, home-based learning. And just the idea, the first and foremost is kind of a mindset where we look at our, the education of our children as a parent, an issue of parent ownership versus just kind of like sending them out to, you know, whichever institution it is. We want to bring in great schools and institutions and all, but we want to keep that ownership ourselves in our home. So creating a great learning environment is the is a really powerful piece of that. So whether you're homeschooling or whether they're coming, you know, supplementing or just weekends and nights and all of that, it makes a big impact on their education when they're coming home to an environment that's very kind of nutrient-rich when it comes to learning. We're going to get into the physicalities, and I've asked Liz to really pin down, you know, specific tools and resources that as parents would be a worthy investment, but can you speak a little bit more to the vibe? I mean, there's something about a home that's open to curiosity and open to questions and open to exploring. How do we go about curating that or creating that vibe in our own homes? Oh, I love that. So there's a great phrase um, by an educational theorist um, named Oliver DeMille. And he says, 
you, not them. So if you're engaged in your own education, and a lot of times we think, well, you know, I'm not working on a PhD right now, or, you know, something along those lines, but most of us in our vocation, our, um, our daily lives, we are involved in some type of learning. So it's really helpful to kind of share that, contextualize it with our kids, share, you know, I love to learn, or this is this podcast I've been listening to. It's really helping me learn things along those lines. So one is talking about it. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, viewing education, not as a checklist or, uh, just being about grades or having more of a kind of entrepreneurial mindset about mm, it. I love that. We, you know, we kind of like own that ourselves. I think that is where the power comes in. When we're owning that, our kids can see that as well, but also helping them just to understand lifelong learning. It's not about just a school system or a a grade you're getting. It's about loving your own human development and being open to that. And we see a lot of issues around that this right now because there's this sense of... Um, you know, that we're maybe a little more fragile than we are. (laughs) Well said. And our kids, especially in the teen years, really need to take on major challenges and learn to have work through difficult feelings, go through challenges and enjoy the rewards so that they feel truly and deeply empowered as an individual. And so to me, when I think of learning, I think that is my whole life long. Sometimes it's going to be through school, sometimes through podcasts, sometimes through books. But it's just a part of, that is the whole journey of this life. And that's a really magical thing. I realize this next question could be a little bit loaded, but I'm anxious to hear your thoughts on this idea of of love of learning. I think there's nothing more satisfying as a parent. Well, there's a lot of satisfying things, I'm sure, that could compete or compare. But one of the things that tops my list is when I see a child thriving in learning, like they're stringing together the words, the letters, they're stringing together the letters and making a word and you see it click, you know, in their eyes or or you sense their elation as they're able to crack that math problem or whatever it is. That's so rewarding. If we're doing it right, and I use that word cautiously and carefully, in other words, if we're, if we're custom our, our parenting approach, being good stewards and taking ownership of that home-based education that you talked about. Can every child, Liz, learn to love learning, learn to appreciate learning to some degree, knowing that all children come to the table with different strengths and skills and interests? Can every child walk away from our homes eventually with a love for learning, do you think? That is such a great question. And I think that that is the kind of question that takes us from our view of like learning as a checklist Uh into our learning as part of human development, the human journey, because absolutely everyone, when we get, you know, come onto this earth, we're ready to learn how to walk. We don't have to take a course on it. We don't have to, you know, our parents help us along. They encourage us. Nature kind of puts that in the parent and the child, especially in those years. Um, And as long as we're staying on that inspired magical path, the more that we are aligned with that, our educational experiences are aligned, the more we keep our love of learning. And at some point we have to make choices, right? To like continue to use um, because it's, um, it's, I don't want to get too deep in the, the, uh, the details here, but when, when, you know, humans go through puberty, we basically go from using a kind of, uh, uh, easy default part of our brain to the prefrontal cortex, which takes a choice. Okay. So we have to choose to turn on that learning 
as we get older, as we get into those teen years. And so that's why it's also really important to introduce teens to challenges and to encourage them to experience hard things. So it moves them from sort of the lizard brain right, right. <laughs> into using the higher brain. And so I think there is a point there where we, we make some choices about whether or not we're going to continue to engage in learning. But I absolutely believe, especially when we're we're, um, like you said, everyone is so different. We all have unique abilities and talents. And if our education is tied to our passions and our interests, you will see a human being go indefinitely on their learning path, mm. right? We interrupt that a lot, unfortunately, in our for- formal learning process. But if we're able to follow the brain around, and there's a lot of um, biological, you know, there are studies about this and all that show, if we follow our interests. That's a unique phrase, Follow the brain around. If we follow the brain around, I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, and that's kind of a, a Carl Jung, like that um, it comes from the world of psychology, you know, that's moved into the world of education. But there's, there's some, there's some good, interesting evidence that it's biological, not just like, mm. oh, I, I'm interested in this, but it's actually kind of like DNA based. Interesting. And as we follow that, it, it allows us to develop into a person who can use our own talent to create great value in the world. So it's a beautiful, natural, sort of like pack of, so you see a kinesthetic kid and let's say, you know, a lot of times in school, they're the hands-on kids, right? Okay. So a lot of times in regular school, they're feeling their needs aren't being met, right? (laughs) You know, and of course they need that critical thinking. They need to learn those things as well, but they're not getting many opportunities to use their hands and to be who they are. So they're sitting in class and the teacher's like eyes on the board and they're thinking about being outside or taking apart a microwave or, you know, (laughs) like taking apart something, some machine or whatever it is. And in, in my experience, the more we can free them up to do that, to spend more of their day on that, the better it is for society, Mm. for them, and for that process of lifelong learning. Which does put, I'm trying to think of a a less negative word than pressure, (laughs) but it does put a little bit of pressure on parents, right? To make up that gap, no matter what your educational opportunities are outside of the home, but to do what you can within the walls of your own home to tap into that learning. And you were so so kind not to go too deep, but I find this fascinating. I really, really do. And I know you're so steeped in the research. You're holding back on us just so we can follow along and understand, speaking of education, so I'm grateful. But let's get at a very basic and foundational question, which is how to physically structure our home in a way that complements the type of learning, lifelong learning that we want to promote and that you're talking about. And you say a really simple way to break this down is by focusing on the four phases of learning. So I'd love you to set up each phase for us briefly and then get into those tools that we could have around ready to grab that would promote and really stimulate learning at this stage. So first, the core phase, define that for us. Yes, yes. So the core phase is sort of zero to seven-ish. And I, you know, our kids don't need to be on a certain track, right? So this is just a kind of a general. um, uh, Yeah, a loose um, kind of sense of the human journey here and the developmental journey. But basically what we're going to want just kind of really boiled down. So if you take all the best theory and around education, the data, what we know, and what is really kind of intuitive to us, what they really need is are learning toys for unstructured play. So there's so many great learning toys, everything from Montessori to Waldorf, you know, you can find lots of great intentional learning toys. And then, um, which this I think is so adorable, little work tools. So it's... 
So cute. But like one of the best things we can give our kids in that window is mini size versions of what we use. So you know how they're always like, you know, they'll want to play with the box instead of the toy or they want the cell phone, whatever parents are using. And that's because they're learning to be little, they're, they're saying, what does it mean to be an adult? What does it mean to grow into, you know, this human experience? We, and so we got my daughter a vacuum cleaner when she was two and it, it turned, it had a light, it made a whirring sound. I mean, she thought it was the bee's knees and I was cracking up like, yeah, please start vacuuming around yeah. the house. Is that what you mean? Just kind of the little versions of adult tools? That's exactly it. That is adorable. And you know, uh, so that's, that's the kind of thing. And you can bring in, so uh, a mom I was recently working with, what she does is she's got her her little one and a half year old. He has a his own little rag, and at you know time time to do the dishes, he's got a stool that gets him right up to size. <laughs> and of course, it takes her longer, but it's so good for the brain because the things that that kids in this age group are learning and play and family work are the most important things for their brain. So when we start talking about academics and all that, very very secondary. This teaches them all the fundamentals they need to do, um, learn for a healthy attachment, social and emotional skills, all those things that will help them grow into deeper scholarship later. I love, again, that broadens the, the spectrum of education or the definition of education. Okay, that's the core phase. The next phase is, is identified as love of learning. What's the age group that this refers to? Yes, this is such a cute time, I think. It's the 8 to 12 age group. Okay. and. Um, this is all about discovery and exploration. So this is the time you can think where they're making, you know, collections of they're wanting to do collection cards or American girl dolls and, you know, all these kinds of, so the brain is learning order um, through a lot of different um, tools and nutrients. So usually uh, I would say, for one, don't expect them to kind of commit to any certain learning tool. So let's say they're really, really want to play guitar. You want to have a lot of nutrients they can choose from, like a, a cheap guitar, a cheap drum set, whatever it is they're asking for. What do you mean they, nutrients? Define that. Yeah. So the the more important than having a specific, let's say, craft kit or a, a toy they're playing with, it's to give them lots of different um, tools that they can use in their own way. Variety. So yeah, a variety so that they can discover. So let's say you've got a sewing bin. You want to have all kinds of different options there that they can use to get inspired and you can kind of teach them or they might take a little lesson with that. Um, let's say they've got, you've got a guitar that they can play with and they may tell you, I'm, I'm going to be a guitarist. This, I can't wait. They're probably going to quit in a month. So <laughs> that's, you know, and that's totally okay. So a lot of times in this, in this time period, what we find is parents kind of saying, you said you were going to do drumming. So I signed you up for a year yes. of class. And instead, we want to focus on nutrient-rich. So let's get them the cheap guitar they can play with, and their brain is going to do what it needs to do, and then it's going to be ready to move on. It's kind of like a bee going to different flowers and maybe on one for a while and then skip quickly to another. But that's, again, that interest-driven. It, it's gonna. It's all about their unique abilities. They're getting what they need. I think that's really valuable because I, I, I know many parents worry about the dabbler, right? My child can't commit. They're unfocused. But you're saying in this phase, that's good. That's a good thing. It's great. It means that they're doing exactly... They're collecting all the things they need for their to create value in the world in their own way. So yeah, and we want to keep inspiring them, right? They don't know what's out there. So we want to expose them to different things. And that's part of, um, you know, doing different lessons. We're going to do tennis. We're going to do soccer, you know, whatever that is. 
just getting them out there to see all the flavors of what's out in the world and letting them play around with that for as long as they're interested. On the flip side, do you worry when you see a child who is a quote unquote specialist or by eight, 10, 11 years old, they've got their thing, they know their thing, they're drilling in on their thing. Does that concern you? That's a great question. So it concerns me if it's parent compelled. Okay. And it doesn't if it's child compelled. So if they are like, this is me and they're in the parent is really supporting them on that with no pressure um, and they're able to change gears. So like if they were to say the next day, I'm not doing, you know, um, violin is not my thing anymore or whatever that is, the parent would support them and continuing their growth. I think that's fine. And people sometimes say, well, they're going to get behind if they don't do that in middle school. Like everybody's learning all of this. Yeah. But Working with many, many students, what I found is if they're getting a great education, they're going to be ready to go deeper in high school. They're going to know themselves better and they're going to enjoy what they do. And most parents would rather have their kids be happy than be successful True. in one area. True. You, and so it takes a little faith, but for it works, sure, you know? parenting faith for sure. You brought up violin, and I don't mean to press the issue, but what if what if a child has engaged in, let's say, violin or another musical instrument for years? And and I don't want to look at my own selfish financial investment, but obviously that's on the line too. But they are good at it, and they have committed for an extended period of time and seem to enjoy it. And one day that educational passion just stops. Do we let it stop? Do we try to revisit it? I realize this puts you kind of in a coaching coaching frame of mind. But as far as education goes, what does that look like? What's the best way to handle that? Yeah. So I know, I think there's two categories here. One, you know, you've got families. So my sister, for instance, they all, you know, one of their things is we're going to all play the piano. Okay. And that is more like a family chore. They're not spending, you know, eight hours a day. They're not becoming like concert pianists or anything. And, and that's great. Like if that's, you've got one thing that we're just all going to do it, that's great. But let's say for that kid who's gone all in, like you said, you've spent all this money, whatever, and they are getting to high school and they're like, it's not me anymore. I don't uh-huh. want to do it. Here's the great thing about that. You've invested in their brain setup. So they have all the skills, everything you've paid for, everything you've done, they're then going to apply in some other area. And that will, whatever comes out will probably be very beautiful. And sometimes kids who have been on one track for a long time, they do look like they're all over the place when they leave it. Um, But they can, they'll eventually get their footing. That's because we kind of did things in reverse order. Mm. And so they need to get a sense of themselves again. So I would not be concerned about that at all. I don't think that it, like I said, it leads to maybe success in the world, out in the world sense, but it does not lead to happiness. And the anxiety and depression levels and the suicide levels are very high among kids who are forced into a rigorous path, kind of beginning to end. Well said. Well said. Thank you for letting me go down that that little rabbit hole of a diversion. I found that really interesting. All right. Core, fa- core phase, check. Love of learning phase, check. Next comes the scholar phase. Define this for us. Yeah. So scholar phase is like 13 to 16-ish there, kind of the teenage years. And this when the brain is developing that prefrontal cortex. And really this time is about, you know, we want to have great books. We want to have excellent mentors, but it's also just about challenges. So taking a kid at zero to seven, we don't want to put them in the deep end with heavy challenges and and that kind of thing. A teenager, we're going to flip that. And now we want them to face hard feelings. We want them to take on the world as is. 
And so um, there are, I, I had a friend who I loved this example. He was getting into high school and he started really getting into video games, like an addiction kind of, and that's where he was getting his challenges, right? You know, okay. and his dad kind of felt like, I want to, I want to make this more meaningful. And he felt he was losing his connection with his son. Um, so he went to the junkyard, this is kind of an extreme example, but he went and he got this old car and he didn't know how to fix it, but he said to his son, we're going to do this project. You know, let's, let's work on this car together. And they spent about two years working on that car and they restored, they knew nothing about it. They watched YouTube restored the whole thing. And he's like, that was the, the biggest factor in my future, my relationship with my dad, the way I grew in my learning. And he's so grateful for that experience. So those challenges don't have to be as big as that, but we want to make sure that whether they're in the home or outside of the home, we're really engaging them in worthwhile mental, physical, social, emotional challenges. So this goes back to your comment that we're not as fragile as we think we are, or they're not as fragile as we think they might be. We can push them, we can challenge them, and it's for their growth, it's for their good. Absolutely. You know, I thinking back to when I was um, directing a school, you know, I would, every year I would have some top performing kid who would admit that they had cheated on a, you know, just a bunch of assignments, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought about, you know, we wanted to talk it through with them. We wanted to make sure that we gave them consequences for what they did, but in a loving way that we, they understood it. And the reason is, you know, I wanted them to experience that cheating in high school is not as dangerous as cheating in a marriage cheating in a job. And so if we can allow our high school students to experience and to look at hard things in a loving, mentored, supported way, mm -hmm. then they're not going to be afraid of feelings when they're, you know, adults and they're going through uncertainty and vulnerability and growth. We want them to embrace that. And, um, and the, the other thing is when they don't have those challenges, it turns into risk-taking behavior. So that's where we see kids going for all kinds of things, you can almost guarantee that it's because they are not being appropriately challenged. That's fascinating. And I really appreciate this conversation, Liz, in more than one way. I think it's easy to subscribe and go along with the headline of this, which is let's broaden education. Let's value the whole life experience. But the fact that you're putting it in, in terms that, that meet me where I'm at, meet me on the ground, so to speak, on the home front is really, really valuable. So scholar phase challenges are key. Give them challenges. The depth phase comes next. Who does this apply to? So this is a kind of a, you know, it's only about a year to two years of the high school experience. So depth is about 17 years old plus, but we tend to do this too late in our culture. So this is all about, actually, it's not about the, the home environment. It's about the real world. Okay. So we want to help um, students to get out into the real world and to start experiencing using their own talents and unique abilities in a way that gives them real feedback. So we often hear these stories of like, you know, the 23 year old still in college changes major five times, you know, <laughs> it's because we need a little exploration time here. And so if we can help kids, you know, let's, you're interested in the medical field, let's get you to, you know, do some grunt work and uncle so-and-so's office or something along those lines, they're getting real world feedback and experiences that's going to create a really nice runway into responsible adulthood. But at 17, I mean, normally those opportunities, like you pointed out, don't hit those internship opportunities or those practicum life opportunities don't hit until much later. Yes. So we have to, we have, like as parents be pretty proactive on creating those. Yeah. So I know, um, uh, 
most students though will have a sense of their interests and and allowing them to do that. Like I worked with a mom coach her recently whose son he wants to be a comedian, right? And she's like, well, I kind of want him to be an accountant or something. <laughs> so he got a practical. But he's going, he wants to play out who he is. And so he's starting a YouTube channel now and he's going to get that going, see how it goes. And he'll get in there and he may spend five minutes there or he may become you know, a great comedian. We don't know how that will play out for him, but if we can start that early, we're, we're honoring the level of maturity of a 17-year-old which isn't quite adult, but it is enough to be out there experiencing the world. Um, another family I worked with, their sons approached them and they said, we're 17 year old twins. And they said, can we, we want to walk the Camino de Santiago in Europe. And the parents said, okay, you're 17. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I'm like, thinking what I wanted to do at 17. I didn't quite meet that, that level. Good on them. Good on them. <laughs> Me too. And if, I think if I had had, they had a great scholar phase, you know, so they had taken on challenges and they were ready to like get out and take on huge. So, but I was the same way. And, um, but they were ready and they said, okay, make the whole plan, get everything done. And they did. They, they spent over a month walking it. They planned the whole thing. They earned all the money. And that was a deeper and better education than anything else they could have been doing at that time. I'm sitting here reflecting on, on really the challenge you've given us as parents to forge and create those opportunities for our kids. And I, I know you're a believer of the balance as well, that we can respect the educators and the quote unquote experts out there who are doing their best to create these educational opportunities while still recognizing that ultimately we're the best advocates, right? We're the best teachers our children will have. That's the perfect way of saying it. Yeah, to be those advocates and to balance that because I'm you know, i all for bringing in every great resource you can. Sure, sure. When, you, when you're in high school, you're not gonna be able to do all that. You're not gonna be able to probably mentor physics and English or whatever it is. And, and some there are some amazing homeschool parents who love to do that. And like you said, there's a balance. We don't want parents to feel like this is a task of total overwhelm, right? Um, but instead, to have that mindset and opening their home, and really, it's just about paying attention to and having a conversation with your child over years, right? Mm. If they're like, I love my school, you can feel like they're getting everything they need, then you're in good shape. Maybe you want to up that a little bit by supplementing. But there are other kids, I've talked to so many parents who you know, have core phase zero to seven age kids who the child comes home from school crying every day or frequent outbursts. And in those cases, that those are the moments when as parents, we want to kind of tune in and say, this, let's find another direction. Yeah. Yeah. In high school, we might want to challenge them to face that in a different way, but we want to just be in that lifelong conversation with them and helping them to expand into their needs. I often like to conclude by asking for some sort of a benchmark. And in this conversation, I'm slightly insecure knowing I'm talking to the woman who just said the report card doesn't have to define you. The grade doesn't have to be the end all. But I am curious to know from your experience and your expertise, Liz, how how do we know? How do we know if our home is this open learning ground, this educationally rich opportunity for children to be who they are, tap into those strengths and skills and interests, and really flourish in their educational journey? What's what's the test for parents out there, or at least the benchmark we can shoot for or or look to observe in our own homes? Yeah. So so I think engagement and that happiness, you know, that engagement and learning and happiness, those yeah. are just some of the very biggest, it's got to work for the parent too. So if the parent is also very unhappy, like I'm doing so much for my kid that it's driving me crazy, 
that's another focus. You It's got to work for both. Um, and I think mostly parents are often very tied to the outcomes of their children, mm-hmm. which is the least controllable piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and that makes you just feel pretty terrible. Like we'll see how they turn out. And then that will be the judgment of whether or not I was a good parent. So I always kind of invite parents to move that to, do you like your input? That's all you need to measure. And so if you feel like, hey, I think we're doing a pretty great job here. My kid seems seems generally happy. Whatever that, I feel like we've created a nutrient-rich environment, supported education. Then there's no, we don't have to wait to see how the child comes out, right? Like how, how they turn out, that will be their choice. And so I think we can just embrace and love what we're doing for our kids and feel good about that rather than waiting to see how they react. Well said. Well said. Liz, this was really this was really nutrient rich. This was a very <laughs> nutrient rich conversation. I mean that. I don't joke. I mean that sincerely. You you pumped us full of a lot of great information and I think even more so inspiration to just be the good the good steward and and the good the good um cheerleader for our kids in their educational pursuits. Uh, your parenting courses help with this as well. Where can we get more guidance from you? Yes. Thank you so much. So alcottlearning.com is our website and we sell courses that where we go really deep and really practical on all this. And we have a couple of courses, how to launch your homeschool in a week. And then we have, you know, a core phase course, a love of learning course to help parents do that, expand that to how, whatever extent they'd like to do. Yeah. So. You know your stuff, girl, and we're better because of it. Thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate thank it. You. I so appreciate you, Rook. Thanks. <laughs> You're listening to Family Rules, the podcast on BYU Radio. We invite you to subscribe for more conversations like this. You can also rate and review. How are we doing? Let us know. We take that feedback to heart and you can do so wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We hope you can join in next time. Family Rules, the podcast is a production of BYU Broadcasting. 